3 John are the two shortest letters in the New Testament, and so we knocked out 2 John last week, we'll knock out 3 John this week, and so what we've done this year so far in 2019 is walk through the, the letter of 1 John, and we're going to do 2 and 3 John, and then we will be moving forward from this section of Scripture in the weeks to come. So last week as we looked at 2 John, it was actually a letter that John the, the Apostle had written to a specific church. We don't know which church um, because he doesn't tell us, but he wrote it to a body of believers. And um, what we're going to notice this morning with 3 John is that it's a letter as well, but this time it's a personal letter. It's, it's a letter written to an individual. Um, and so we are going to just pick up and read this short letter. So 3 John, beginning in verse 1. The elder, so this is John referring to himself, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all of your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. And I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and he also stops those who want to, and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. So there's, a, there's an element to Third John that feels like you've, you've picked up somebody else's mail and you're reading it, right? Um, and it, and it, there's a, a portion in there when he starts going after diatrophies that you're like, ah, maybe you should put this down, right? Um, this feels a little like, wait, what? this is a little juicy, right? Because he's, he's going pretty hard at this guy. But what we're going to see here this morning is this letter is, is a personal letter. We see it um, in the beginning that it was written to an individual, Gaius, um, who is a friend. Um, in the end, he tells him, look, greet our mutual friends. Um, it has the typical components of a letter and that he wishes him well in verses 2, um, 3, and 4, um, that he's, he's hopeful for him. He's got kind of this prayer for him. He's establishing rapport. And then we see the, the meat and the heart of the letter. And so we need to set a little bit of a scene here. Remember, what we've seen in First John, the first letter that we walked through, was that there was a group of folks um, who have, have left the faith. And they have left the faith and they were part of the church. They were, they, were, they were a big part of the church. But now they have walked away from faith in Jesus. 
And they've been looking to pull additional folks out of the church. And so what John does is he writes this letter, and he's looking to pastorally care for the people in all these areas, all these churches around Ephesus, saying, hey, I want you not to be deceived by these false teachers. And so most of 1 John is that. It's giving assurance to those who have remained, and it's combating the false teachers. Well, in 2 John, then we see a specific issue. He says, look, now there are, there are groups of missionaries that have gone out. And so there are two groups. There's one who are following in the footsteps of, of Paul and Peter and John, and they are taking the good news and the hope of the gospel to the world. And there's a second group, and they are going out, and they are claiming to have truth as well, but they're false teachers. And that, but they are, they're going out in the same way, looking to speak to the churches, to draw folks out of the churches. And so in 2 John, John has written to a church saying, look, you do not show hospitality. You do not host these false teachers. Because when you do, you're setting them up and saying, we vouch for these people. He's like, so you're participating in their evil deeds and in their evil works. So don't host them. Knowing that hospitality was actually a really big deal and a, and a, a huge component of what the early church needed to do. So third John now is kind of addressing that it seems that some in the churches have said, okay, if we can't show hospitality to to everybody, then we're not going to show it to anyone. And John is looking to correct those who are in the church saying, hey, you have like bona fide, trusted people sent by the churches looking to, to minister to you who are missionaries on their way to other places. You need to take care of them. And you have someone like Diotrephes who's saying, yeah, we're not going to do it. And we're not going to listen to you when, when you say that. And so the first thing that, that John is going to do in this letter, um, and you just, you see this pastoral nature. Remember at this point, um, this letter is most likely written in the early 90s, right? Like in 0090, right? Like 2,000 years ago. Um, at the end of John's life. And so he's an older man. Um, he is a pastor. He's caring for these folks. And so Gaius is someone who has done well. And so what you see in these initial verses is John is simply commending him. He's saying, man, I see what you're doing, and I appreciate it, and I'm grateful for it, and I want you to continue to do it. Look at verse 5. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all of your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. And so what he's saying is, look, you have been showing hospitality to these people that you do not know. I, I commend you for that. Continue to do it. They weren't your friends. They weren't people you knew. They were strangers, and yet you are showing them effort and, and faithfulness and care. You're taking care of them. You're providing them a place to sleep and food, and you're doing these things for their benefit. And so he says, look, in verse 6, Um, These men have returned to the places they've come from. They testified to your love before the church. And so his reputation now has gone on beyond him. That they've returned and they're saying, hey, in this city, wherever Gaius lived, and there's a guy there and he's going to take care of you. He he takes care of those who are doing the Lord's work, who are on mission. And so you see in verse 4 that John is saying, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now look, this is a verse that gets co-opted by parents all the time, all right? Because they want to say, like, you know, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's a true and right statement. Gaius, though, is not John's, like, blood child. He is saying, hey, you, so whether he was the one who helped convert Gaius or he's simply saying you are a part of the church, 
And as an older man, I can call you a child without you being offended. He's like, I'm encouraged to know that you are walking in the truth, that you are being faithful to what you have been called to do in the gospel. And remember what John has kind of laid out, walking in the truth to be. Walking in the truth is ordering our life around the truths of the gospel. So he's saying, like, you're not just saying you believe these things. You're actually showing it by being hospitable to these strangers who are coming through. And so he commends him, but he also says, look, in verse 8, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. In verse 6, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. And so he's not only commending him, he's saying, keep doing it. I want you to continue Continue to care for them, to serve them, to vouch for them. Continue to send them on their way with the supplies that they need, the money that they need. Why? Verse 7, for they have gone out for the sake of the name. He's saying they have left their place, their work, their things, and they've gone out for the sake of Jesus. They're looking to, to do the Great Commission, Matthew 28, to go into all the world making disciples. Right, that they have gone out, and he says, because they're doing this for the sake of Jesus, take care of them. Because we know there was a legitimate need. There were no hotels. What few inns they were were not safe places. They were sketchy places. And he's like, so you're doing not just a, a kindness to them, you're doing like a life-saving thing for them too. That you're keeping them in, in good health and in safety. And notice what he says, verse 8. That therefore we ought to support people like these who have gone out for the sake of the name of Jesus, that we would be fellow workers for the truth. I think often, and, and this is kind of an aside, we're not going to spend a lot of time here this morning, but there's often the church has said, hey, if you're not going, something is wrong. Like if you're not on your way somewhere. And what, notice what John says, he's like, you are a fellow worker for the truth when you're supporting those who are going. Right? There's, two, there's two factors here. There are those who are going and those who are sending, and that together we are fellow workers for the truth. And it's, it's why we want to not just be concerned with our, our little church here. Right? We want to be about church planning in other places. We want to be about the nations. We want to see the gospel go forth whether you ever set foot in those places or not that we are fellow workers for the truth. And for some of us, the call is going to be to go. And for some, it's going to be to send, but that we would be fellow workers for the truth. So he is commending him. But he's not just commending. He's also drawing attention to diatrophies. Look at verse 9, because the tone of the letter changes. I've written something to the church, but diatrophies, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So it's like, hey, I've commended you, but now we got, let's, let's talk. And so most likely what has happened is Diotrephes is, is, is a leader in the church in whatever city Gaius is in, right? We know this because if we look down um, at verse 10, it says that, look, he refuses to welcome the brothers, he stops those who want to, and he puts them out of the church. So if he has the ability to put people out of the church, he has some, le- some level of leadership, He's not just like put out with them. He has some level of authority. And that we see that there's been a previous letter. Verse 9, I have written something to the church. Now listen, that's not 1 John or 2 John. It's a letter we don't have because these, these letters do not contain this element that he's writing to. And so he's basically sent a letter 
The church got it. Diotrephes, whether he let it be read or not, has not allowed things to happen the way John has asked. And what John has asked is, don't show hospitality to false teachers. Do show hospitality to true teachers. Right? And Diotrephes is doing a few things here. Look what it says. One, he just kind of goes at, he says he likes to put himself first. He does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing. He is talking wicked nonsense. He is gossiping against us. He, and he's, listen, and he's not content with that. He's not just talking. He's refusing to welcome the brothers. So most likely what has happened is John has sent letters ahead and said, hey, I'm vouching for these people. Please bring them in. Please take care of them. And Diotrephes is saying, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And so now John is writing to Gaius, who is a member of the church, who is doing these faithful things. And he's saying, look, when I send it to the church, it's not being dealt with. I've heard a report that you are being hospitable, so I'm sending this to you because we have an issue in the church. And he's not just content with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers. He stops those who want to do it. So it's not just that he personally is opposed to it. He's going to try to keep you from doing it. And if you do, he then puts them out of the church. Now listen, there was obviously a beef between John and Diotrephes. Scholars, commentators have, have argued back and forth for years as to what, it, what was it. Was it something personal that had happened between them? Was it, was it theological, right? Had they considered something and had this disagreement? Um, potentially what it was, was that it's a little bit of a kind of tit for tat, is that John has said, hey, we're not going to host those who are false teachers. And that, and that Diotrephes has sided with those who have left the church, that he's a bit of a cessationist here. Um, he, he has this, he's gone out with those who have left the church. He has sided with them, and he's like, oh, if you're not going to host our guys, I'm not going to host yours. And then he's just kind of trying to stick it to Paul. Or, sorry, stick it to John here. We're not really sure what it is that has created this like, issue between John and Diotrephes. But there is a substantial issue. Listen, uh, again, just a brief aside here. Be encouraged that this kind of stuff's in Scripture. Right? Like, this is real life. <laughs> That there are real issues that emerge, that things are not always like hunky-dory and perfect in the church, or if you're a pastor or a leader or an elder, then no one ever has an issue or a beef with you, right? Like, that's, that's not true. We can see this throughout Scripture that, that Paul and Barnabas have to part ways on a missionary journey, right? We see this, that, that Paul has to confront Peter about some things that he's doing in the book of Galatians, right? Like, he's like, hey, we, we got to stop this because the way you're acting is not God honoring. And, and so we see, right, reconciliation happen, but we also just see that there is interpersonal conflict, that there is need for things to be dealt with. It's one of the reasons that I think we can trust the veracity of Scripture. Because if you were looking to whitewash and just give forth the best possible effort, you would just say, Third John doesn't make the cut. It doesn't have a lot of new theological deep truths. So, we'll just deal with this by saying, yeah, this isn't Scripture. Because, man, John's kind of going at this guy. 
And this guy's not listening to John. And so, just would you be encouraged <laughs> that the interpersonal conflict doesn't somehow all of a sudden just automatically disqualify you from something? <laughs> that there can be issues and they can be dealt with and they can be dealt with in a healthy fashion. What is, what's going on here, though, is this, is John, who is, is the last apostle, I want you to imagine that, that your father, your grandfather, your mother, someone in your family who you tremendously respect and whose voice is respected, ask you to pass along a piece of information or to do something based on something they've said, and you're like, yeah, I'm not doing it because you're not here. That's all well and good until they show up, Right? And then you regret that decision. So in this culture, this is an honor and shame culture. John has obviously earned some honor. He walked with Jesus. He's an older man now who has been serving, pastoring, shepherding churches, writing, encouraging, doing all. And, and so now he sends a request, and he just expects the request to be, to be done because he's, he's an apostle, because he's doing it on behalf of Jesus. And someone's like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Right, there is a, there is, this is a shameful thing. This isn't just a disagreement. It's a lack of respect. And so John is dealing with it. And so this letter, he is commending Gaius. He is drawing attention and saying diatrophies will be dealt with. And he's also, he wants to, to vouch for Demetrius. Look at verse 12. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. That that phrase, from the truth itself, just means if you look at his life, you're going to see that he's living based on the truth. So we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. So so very likely, Demetrius is either the the bearer of this letter, like he's showing up to Gaius and handing it, and now Demetrius is standing there awkwardly, right, as Gaius reads it and going, and John saying, I vouch for the guy who's just brought you the letter. Right, and he's hoping that he's going to take him in, or Demetrius will soon be coming to town. This letter is getting there ahead of him, and he's saying, "Hey, when Demetrius shows up, I want you to continue to do what you've been doing, what I've commended you for." And so you see, John still kind of pastorally discipling and shepherding Gaius, because he knows that the influence in the church, the influence in the city, would be to put Demetrius out, to not care for him. And he's saying, "Look, I've heard that you've done what's right. Continue." And you've got an opportunity to do it soon with Demetrius. And so this letter is super practical, right? It's, it's commending Gaius. It's, it's pastorally kind of challenging him. It's bringing forth an issue that needs to be dealt with in diatrophies. It's why John will say, look, I have much to write to you, but I would rather not write it with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. So peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. And, and if we look at the letter, like that's, that's, that's kind of the, the heart of it there. But what I want us to note this morning and where we're going to spend the rest of our time is looking at the, the hospitality that is and isn't taking place here in this letter. And I think it's important for us that we quickly define it because when we hear hospitality, maybe you think about like you can go get a degree in hospitality now, right? Like in, in college, like to work in the, ho- the, the hotel industry. You can, you can be trained in hospitality. But what we see biblically, what hospitality is, is it is love for strangers. Look at verse 5. 
Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all of your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. And so the word hospitality in the Greek, it literally means love for strangers. That you are taking care not of your closest family, your closest friends, but of those who aren't yet friends or family. And we've already said that there was a literal need, like a safety need for hospitality in this day and age, in this era. And Scripture calls us to it. I just want to look at two. The first is Romans 12, verse 13. This is Paul writing the church in Rome, and he says this. "Um, So, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. And then if we look at 1 Peter, Peter, as he's writing the church, He says this in chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. So so both Paul and Peter are saying, look, church, part of our job is to love one another and it's to love the strangers. It's, It's to care. It's to use the gifts that God has called us to, to serve, to love them. He, he reminds us that in our love for one another, it can cover a multitude of sins that occasionally we're going we're gonna to speak poorly or do something wrong or offend, but that when it comes from a place of, I know you care for me, right, that we can deal with that, that love will cover the sin that may have taken place. So we have this scriptural call to be hospitable. Listen, in our culture, though, we think of hospitality as in like, like, taking care of someone's needs and kind of impressing them, right? And doing it in a really lavish way is how we tend to think of hospitality. When we were living in Yemen, um, you know, we'd be walking down the street. And I'm telling you, this happened on a weekly basis that someone would come running after us, hollering, trying to get our attention, or a vehicle would come up right beside us and the doors would open and someone would jump out. Now, here's what you're thinking. Right? If I drop you in Yemen this morning and a, and a van pulls up to you and someone throws the door open and jumps out, you're not going, I'm ready for my hug, right? You're thinking, here we go, right? Right? Because we, we're just kind of programmed to think that way. But what would happen is people would see us and they would immediately say, you're not Yemeni, right? Because they hadn't seen a lot of Westerners. And then they would say, we want you to come to our home, get in our van. Right? Or, hey, take my hand. I'm going to walk you to my house. So here's the thing. If that happens to you today, right, you're not jumping in a van, right? Right? You're not. Like, here's the thing. In Yemen, we got in the van. And it wasn't out of fear, and it wasn't because, like, we were being, like, like prodded and forced in the van. Arab culture is known for being some of the most generous, hospitable people in the world. And so what they know is this, is you are a stranger and we don't know strangers, but we want to bring you in. This comes from kind of the Bedouin idea where they they would travel throughout and and people traveling were dependent upon finding someone who had water and food (laughs) because you're, you're living in a harsh environment. And so that culture has just carried on for thousands of years. 
And so people would bring us in, and there are all these rules that would take place, right? That if as the food was set before you, um, often the women and the children were not in the room. And the reason for that would be this. If someone's going to go without, it won't be our guest. Because we brought you in, and this, the most shameful thing we could do is to run out of food, so we need to make sure you're full first before we're going to feed anybody else in the family. And so in America, if you want to show the host, right, that you liked the meal set before you, you clean your plate. In Yemen, I clean my plate. I want to be a good, you know, guest. And they brought me another one. (laughs) And so I'm like, I could still eat. So I clean my plate, and they bring me another one. And now I'm like, how do I stop this? And, And what I learned was you had to leave food on your plate. Leaving food on your plate wasn't rude to the host. It was saying, I'm satisfied. I've had enough. I'm full. I couldn't eat any more. Right? And they even had a hand motion for it. You could do this. Right? And you're like, I've, I've had it up to here. But it wasn't a negative thing. It's like, I'm full to here. Right? I can't eat anymore. And, and so they, they have sayings. Like, there's a saying in, in, in Arabic that they would die for their guests before their brother. They take hospitality very serious. And often what would happen in that conversation was this. Hey, when you go back to America, tell them you had a good time. Tell them we don't hate them. Right? Like they're, they're wanting a message to be passed on of like, have you enjoyed, and so you'll hear people, people would stop us all the time and say, have you enjoyed Yemen? You've enjoyed it, right? Like they wanted us to have this wonderful experience to talk about. Now listen, this, that is not American culture. Right? You're not driving down the street seeing someone who doesn't look like you going, come to my home. Have you had a good time in Pampa? <laughs> I want you to, I want to make sure, you're right? Like, this isn't, this is not what we do. The church, God pursues us. Right? Like, God has shown hospitality in that he sent his son who then showed kindness to us. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance, that he chases us down, that he pursues us. We see this with the people of Israel being pulled out of Egypt, right, where they were strangers and enslaved and brought into a place where they would belong and be family and be hope that God rescues the strangers. He pursues them and chases them down. And if we're not careful, here's what our culture is saying right now. It's saying to those who do not seem to have value or worth, we don't want you. Like, oh, that seems a little harsh, right? The abortion industry, right? As you think about sometimes the way things have been moving with with the elderly, with special needs. We see it right now in, in a lot of race conversations, we see it with those who appear to be abused or broken or in, enslaved or in bondage to some sort of addiction that at some point our, our culture just kind of washes our hands and says, you have no worth, you have no value. We're done. But church, that is not our message because our message is, no, 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 you're wanted, you're loved, you are valued because you are created in the image of our good king. And your life has inherent value before you produce anything or whether you ever produce anything because you were made by him. See, God is a God of hospitality. And the king invites us to the table and he says, eat those who have no money. Drink freely those who cannot pay. Come and be a part of the family of God. It's all yours and you cannot pay it back. And here's the thing, we think too highly of ourselves 
And so we assume that we're the one on the, collar, the, one on the corner popping our collar going, of course I'll be invited. And we don't see ourselves as the abused or as the broken or as the leper or as the impoverished, the one who has no right. We don't see ourselves as the sinful rebel who God has graciously and mercifully showed kindness to, who has pursued us and brought us in to his family that we cannot pay. And so this morning, if we're going to be hospitable people, we first have to see ourselves rightly that we are recipients of hospitality that we have been given what we could not pay back. And so if we're going to be hospitable, we have two motivations. One is we look back and we see, look at what God has done. This is who God is. He has done it for the people of Israel, and he has done it for us. But a second motivation is that we get to look forward. And in Revelation 19, and if we look at these stories of heaven, that there's the marriage feast of the Lamb, where the church will be gathered with him, those who are broken, beaten, those whose life was difficult and hard, those who were sinners and rebels who were saved by the grace of God, will gather together in a hospitable fashion and feast with our good Father who has adopted us as sons and daughters. And so we look back to see that God has done this, and we look forward to a moment where this will happen again, and we will sit in the presence of God and enjoy Him for all time. And so we then are called to be hospitable, right? And so as we read Third John, are we going to be more like Gaius or are we going to be more like Diotrephes? The first way, I just want to talk about a few practical things here. The first is this. Your first opportunity to be hospitable is on Sundays at 11-ish in this room, okay? Because folks walk in that door And it's their first time where they haven't been here much. And so where you are comfortable and at home, they're not. And they go, I don't know where the bathroom is because we just got a sign, right? And I'm not sure where my kids go. And I'm not sure if I'm sitting in somebody's seat, right? and, And they have all these thoughts about what they think church is or what it has been in their life. And guess what? You can be hospitable by smiling, by shaking a hand, by asking and remembering a name, by hearing, by engaging in conversation, by answering questions, right? That you treat this as like, hey, this is my place. I belong here. Let me help you feel like you belong too because you can. And so listen, I've had folks who have have told me, listen, it wasn't that we had 50 people talk to us on a Sunday morning. It was that we looked around and saw that people were kind and that they liked each other, that I want to belong to a place like this. And so hospitality doesn't only happen in your living room or in your kitchen, right, or in your backyard. It can happen here and that you take some ownership to say, I want people to feel like they belong because look at what it's done for me in my life. Look at what Jesus has done in us and through us. Church, we can also view that, listen, if we're just being honest, um, Hospitality does not look like Pinterest, okay? Hospitality looks like dishes piled up in the sink, six bags of trash, and tired people, okay? That's what hospitality looks like in reality. And so if we're going to be hospitable, we have to see those things not as burdens any longer, but as weapons of war that are being waged to fight a good fight. 
that we have been put on mission, and that there are people who do not think they belong. There are people who do not think they're loved. There are people who do not think they have value, and we have received that from the King, and we have it to give freely because we have been received. We have received hospitality. Listen, there is a cost, and things will be broken in your home. Things will get worn out. They will be dirty. You will be tired. But it is a real battle for souls and for hope and for life. Right? Like if we think about this like picture perfect, yes, Jesus has rescued me, but it's Easter season and we're reminded that our rescue came through a bloody cross and an impartial, sorry, an unfair trial and mock and humiliation, that it was not pretty and pristine and clean. It was ugly and it was hard fought and it was won for our benefit at the cost of Jesus. So hospitality is going to cost you. It's just do we see it as worth it? Right? Do we see that we've received it and so it's worth it? Church, a third thing here is what attitude do we take into it? Listen to what, again, one more time, how John describes the atrophies. Look at verse 9. Diotrephes likes to put himself first. He does not acknowledge our authority. He talks wicked nonsense against us. He likes to put himself first. Yet the whole point of John's letters, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, have been this. We are not a self-serving people. We are a self-sacrificial people. Because Jesus has sacrificed on our behalf. And if you turn to Philippians 2 and look through verses 1 through 11, you see that Jesus, who was worthy of worship humbles himself, empties himself, and comes in humility to serve, not to be served, to sacrifice on our behalf. And so the attitude that we take into it is not pride and arrogance of thinking of ourselves first. We want to image our king as self-serving, humble, sacrificial. I said self-serving. I did not mean self-serving. Self-sacrificial, serving of others, humble people. The image of Jesus who has done this on our behalf. And so we can do it on Sunday mornings. Our attitude matters. We see the value in, in the, the tiredness and the effort that we have that are weapons of war. And the last thing is this. Start inviting people into your home. There is no qualification for what your home looks like, how little, how small, uh, how big, how nice, how not nice, how like up-to-date or not, like People don't walk in and say, I feel so like warmed by the niceness of your home. They say, you make me feel at home. You put me at ease, right? It's, it's people, it's not places that do this, right? That if, it's, if you've been to a place that you have loved and the people have been good to you, and you go back and no one's there and you realize, oh, this place is kind of hollow without the people, right? Like that it's, it's the people who make the difference. And so we can start by inviting one another. Because the fact is, is a lot of you don't know one another's names or stories yet. And it's not, I'm not, it's not a dig at all. It's just saying, as Redeemer grows, it's easier and easier to say, well, you're in that crazy section and we're in the window section. Or we're like, it's just easier. And so if you say, hey, I don't know you, let's have lunch. Right? That we would minister to one another, we would be hospitable to one another, and that that's not a three-course meal. That can look like chicken E on paper plates, right? Like, that, that it's okay. 
And then that you would begin to ask the Lord to open your eyes to people in your neighborhood, in your family, at work, on your kid's t-ball team, wherever, that you have some connection with, some influence with, to say, how do I pursue them in the way that God has pursued us with loving kindness, making us a part of the family when we did not deserve it? This is not about looking at people who fit our standard or who deserve some, something from us. This is about pursuing people and remembering how we were broken sinners and rebels and saying, I've received something I cannot repay so I can offer something that you don't need to repay. First John had three tests for us. Do you love God? Right? You obey Him. Do you love others? And do you believe the right stuff? Hospitality allows us to do that. Do you love God by obeying and being an image bearer of Him? Do you love others by being hospitable even at cost to yourself? And do you live with the right belief that you are only passing on what you've already received, what you've already been given undeserved and freely? So listen, this morning, we're going to end with this. We are going to, the band's going to come back up. We're going to have an opportunity to just to, to remember who we are and who he is, that we are rescued people. We're also going to take the, the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is a reminder that, that it's Jesus' blood spilt on the cross that cleanses us and frees us. It's his body, which is the bread that was broken on our behalf. And so the, the Lord's Supper is for believers, those who trust Jesus, who treasure Jesus, who see that as their their opportunity. But here's the thing, that table, the Lord's Supper table, is the door that you get to the feast. It is through, not, it's not through the taking of the elements, it's through the belief that what Jesus has done through his perfect life, through his obedient death and his subsequent resurrection of beating sin and Satan and death, that he is living today, that is through his body and his blood spilled and broken on our behalf, not through your attempts and your efforts and your knowledge and your giving and your goodness that secures a right relationship with the Father. And that right relationship with the Father through Jesus means this, that you're going to feast with him for all eternity. That is what we're called to. That's what we want to remember this morning. And so we're going to take a moment um, just to reflect, what is the Lord calling us to this morning? Who is he calling us to? Or, or do we need to repent that we think too highly of ourselves? Do we need to ask him, show me who, who is it that you would have me be hospitable to? Maybe he's just going to remind you of the grace and the hospitality he has poured out on you this morning. And then the band's going to come up and we're just going to have a time to sing and praise and worship our king who has done this. And at any point during those songs, you and your family or friends, whoever would like to, you can get up and go take the elements of the Lord's Supper. Um, There'll be men and women in the back of the room if you need someone to talk to or pray with. But let's respond this morning, not, not to be noticed, but because our King is worth it.